My name is William Corliss and this is the Workplace Podcast. Brought to you in association with Yellowwood, providers of executive coaching, corporate training and facilitation. Your external learning and development partner. Each week we focus on a different aspect of the workplace. We hear from guest speakers who will be subject matter experts, who I believe are incredibly talented at what they do. These experts will give you a different perspective and insight to work life, with the aim of empowering you to take a different path to success in all aspects of work life. These perspectives will include career and personal success, leadership, high performance teams, and creating a better work life culture in your organization. Yellowwood, take a different path to success with your career, team, and organization. Welcome to the Workplace Podcast. Our guest today is Caroline Nodebert, is a renowned TEDx talk speaker, bestseller author and expert on leadership and personal development. With a PhD in neuroscience, she offers leadership seminars, retreats and keynotes, with Hack Your Brain being her most requested topic. She teaches at various top business schools worldwide and has received excellence awards for her teachings. She is the founder of the Science and Leadership Academy, which focuses on the creation of great organizations through the development of great leadership. She loves to discuss life questions with anyone who crosses her life path. She is a devoted climber, hiker and runner and loves to spend time outdoors. She lives with her family in Frankfurt, Amman, and more information at www.scienceandleadership.com. Caroline, welcome to the Workplace Podcast. How are you? Thanks a lot, William. Thanks a lot for the invitation and great to see you again. It's great to see you too. Uh, We first met in Germany um, doing uh, a workshop on Lego Serious Play. You know, so uh, we struck up a conversation there and you talk to me about what you did for a living and I was really interested in what you did in terms of neuroscience and especially your your talk um to hack your brain I thought that was fabulous you know um and for yourself what what do you remember most about me because that's what I remember most about you Actually, I think it's quite funny if, uh, you know, my children were asking me uh, who I was having the interview with. And I said, this is some guy I met playing Lego with, you know. So, so it's actually, I, I still remember you as a very enthusiastic person. I think you were probably the most enthusiastic person in that room. And uh, yeah, just generally a very broad interest into just what happens uh, in the world and how people develop. And uh, yeah, this is how I remember you. Yeah, and, and another way I can remember you now is because of your book. So The Pilgrim Who Trained Her Monkery, uh, What the Brain Reveals About How to Live, uh, to Lead a Fulfilled Life, which I thought was a wonderful read, if I'm honest, uh, Caroline. Well, I'm very happy that you enjoyed the book. And, you know, for me, that's the, the topic of the uh, podcast today is, you know, neuroscience in the workplace. And what I really enjoyed about the book, and I said this before the podcast, was how easy and accessible you make this topic of neuroscience. So it's great that you tell that in a very 
um, telling way. It's a very much a storytelling narrative. And what you do is you weave in the theory so easily, uh, which, which you're telling me is based on real conversations. Yeah, indeed. Well, the book that you mentioned is actually based on a pilgrim's walk that I undertook in Ireland, the Wicklow Way, or a part of the Wicklow Way, which I did with one of my kids, my oldest daughter. And um, she started to walk by asking me the question, who am I? I mean, how do I know who I am and what I want in life? And sure, perhaps these are questions that young adults would ask, but William, I'm not sure how this is with you, but at least this is a question that I asked myself also in my age. Who am I and what yeah. do I want, right? Yeah, and that's true. Is Sometimes we get into certain crossroads in our life or in our career, and then we suddenly have this uh, reflection piece about our identity. Who am I? And I, you know, when I was reading this book and the conversation you were having with your daughter, I was kind of going, what a wonderful legacy to leave your children. <laughs> Uh, to be honest, I felt quite emotional when I was reading it because I was like, this is something I'd love to leave my children. Um, so I, I have to applaud you on that. It was it's something that really uh, struck me. And in terms of that, you talk about different challenges in the workplace. So what is the role of neuroscience in the workplace? Well, first of all, uh, sometimes this is misunderstood, but everything that we do, everything we feel, the decisions that we make, these are all driven by our brain. This is like they have a biological foundation. And uh, I believe that leaders who want to improve themselves or want to become the best version of themselves, it helps them to understand how their own brain ticks, how they make decisions, how their performance is influenced you know, throughout the normal working day and what it is that they can do. And I believe that neuroscience delivers a lot of answers. And it's exactly those answers that I believe are important to discuss in the workplace. Mm. Um, you know, we're talking about what do we need to discuss in the workplace? What, what do you think are the key things that leaders should be discussing in the workplace, especially when it comes to neuroscience? Well, perhaps I'd like to mention two brain structures that play a significant yeah. role in our daily life as a leader or just for anyone. And one of them that I'd like to mention is the amygdala. And the amygdala, yeah. I really hope that uh, the listeners will remember that. And I think, William, you also remember that amygdala yeah. from the book, right? Um, and the amygdala is a structure that is very deep inside the brain. It's part of our emotional system in the brain. And whenever we are in a real danger, the amygdala will be triggered and they will put ourselves in a fight, flight, freeze response. Mm. But also in situations where we don't really have a real danger, they can also become very active. And that's the moment that they can lead to stress, or this is the moment that they can block us in our own potential as a leader or just in whatever activity we would be doing. So I believe the amygdala probably is one of the main structures that I find important here to mention. Yeah, and it's that primal response that we have, isn't it, to to danger? And sometimes it's that misperception that we're in danger when we we're really in danger. It's that the the body's alarm system or warning system, isn't it? Indeed, that's it. And sure, in, if you say the alarm system is very important in case of danger, but uh, how do you feel when you stand on stage, William? I'm not sure if you're very comfortable standing on stage in front of an audience. Yeah, 
if I'm oh. honest, every time I'm in front of a group, uh, it is never easy. Uh, that's why they call it work, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. But this is the perfect example of a situation where the amygdala becomes active without having a real danger and we feel uncomfortable. We might feel blocked in our, in, in our potential to speak or potential to perform whatever it is. And this is because the performance in itself on stage or whatever, wherever you need performance, we need another brain structure which is really important. And that other brain structure is called the prefrontal cortex. It's yeah. the part of the brain here, full in front of our brain. And this is one that, is, that plays an extremely important role in all your executive functions. And I believe leaders, they are, whatever it is they're engaging, they need their executive functions, planning, organizing, decision-making, processing information, thinking of solutions. This all runs over the prefrontal cortex. But I'm quite sure, William, you've already experienced that we're not always capable of bringing our best cognitive performance. And this is because the prefrontal cortex has a limited capacity. It's a bit like, you know, a mental battery. It's the best mm. way to compare the prefrontal cortex with. Yeah, so so from from my experience, it's a bit like if somebody puts you on on the spot or under pressure, this is where that amygdala, or, sorry if I pronounce it correctly, that hijack uh, comes on and that prevents us from accessing the prefrontal cortex. So you talked about executive functions, you talked about communication, planning, what are the other different executive functions there so people can realize what's been impacted, especially in the, in the, in, in terms of their own performance or their own potential? Yeah. Well, there's probably three parts if it comes to the executive functions. Uh, firstly, we have these functions that are related to the self. So just regulating yourself, planning yourself, prioritizing, and so on and so forth. Um, then you also have the more, so emotional uh, functions. So the prefrontal cortex also plays an important role in recognizing your emotions and also steering them and using them. And I think the last functions, the last category of functions of the prefrontal cortex, as you've just mentioned, are the social functions or communication functions. Being able to listen, being able to understand, being able to reply or act in an empathic way. These are all functions for which we need the prefrontal cortex. And they all, I believe, relate to our performance. And, and you know, some people are listening here today, today and kind of going, oh my, all my executive functions have been impacted uh, here, you know. Um, and then other people that I work with might be impacted as well. You know, is there you know, is there a way around that or, you know, how might we become, you know, uh, I suppose our, our best selves in the workplace where we can access the prefrontal cortex more often? Yeah, indeed. I think indeed, you know, the brain, the way it works for me is also pretty much the way that it works for you. So I think we all recognize ourselves in the story where there's moments where we are very good at our cognitive performance because the prefrontal cortex is fully charged and then the more we use it and this shows especially at the end of a tough working day the most the more we've used our mental battery the worse our mental performance or also the worst version we are of ourselves so in fact what it is that we need to answering your question 
we need something to down-regulate the amygdala so that our prefrontal cortex can reserve its resources for the real performance and not to be always dealing with our levels of stress and dealing with our excessive amygdala activation. And okay. this is the magical keyword, William. We need self-regulation. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard about self-regulation before, right? Please tell me more, remind me, because <laughs> I have studied emotional intelligence where they bring up, you know, self-regulation and, and I can see where emotional intelligence actually derives from is neuroscience. Yeah. Um, so tell me more about self-regulation then. Yeah. Well, self-regulation, this is our capacity to recognize those inner blockages that are mostly called by excessive amygdala activation so that we can access our prefrontal cortex again. And there's quite a lot of self-regulation strategies out there that I work with, and I also know that you work with them. Um, and there's one in particular that is very powerful, that also has been shown by science to have extreme positive effects, mm -hmm. in the sense that if you regularly practice this strategy, you will down-regulate the amygdala activation effectively, and also you will give the prefrontal cortex a significant boost. And this powerful cell regulation strategy that I'm talking about, but I'm sure you can guess that already, is mindfulness. Yeah. How is it with mindfulness actually in Ireland? Does, does it still have the esoteric touch or are people you believe more open now to this approach? Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny, you know, I sometimes bring it up in class, you know, especially in leadership development programs. And it's a bit like, we don't have time for that. You know, or <laughs> I'm... I, I'm uncomfortable with this silence yeah. or whatever. So I have to say in, since my awareness of it over the last couple of years, because it's, it's, it's had different names over the last couple of years, you know, it used to be awareness, then meditation and, you know, mindfulness. So it's, it's changing its form slowly. And I think, I think it's getting more and more popular you know, okay. especially with the connotations with um, mindfulness CBT and, you know, cognitive behavior therapy. I think it is getting more popular and people are more aware of it, especially technology use. So we might talk about that actually in a few minutes. Yeah. So, so tell me, what are the benefits of mindfulness then? So if, if I'm a leader that is resistant to mindfulness and kind of going, you know what, that's just for people who do yoga and maybe hippies and stuff like that, that's not for me. Who, who you know, what, what would you say to someone listening in that might be resistant to mindfulness? Well, just to sum it up, uh, the performance that you bring, this stands for your potential minus your internal interferences. Those yeah. internal interferences, as I just discussed, are results by excessive amygdala activation. And your potential yeah. relies on a good functioning prefrontal cortex, right? So these are the yeah. key ingredients. What mindfulness does, if you regularly practice it, and be careful, we have to practice it correctly, what is going to happen is that the amygdala will calm down, but it will stay calmed down. Also, when we're not necessarily in a mindfulness exercise. So this means that the largest source of your internal interferences that block you in your unique potential, this will significantly reduce when you practice mindfulness regularly. And on top of that, to make the story even better, if you regularly practice mindfulness, the prefrontal cortex and all its executive functions will also receive a significant boost. 
this is not uh, William my personal opinion. This is a scientific statement, of course, that I'm making here. And these are the key ingredients that we need to become the best version of ourselves. And I believe this is a, a key message for leaders because leaders have followers. Well, in the best case, they have followers. And I believe it's very nice to have people who want to follow you because you are the best version of yourself. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because the very first podcast that I created was Leadership in Troubling Times. And, you know, we talk about role models where it's really important to have um, leaders that who are culture drivers that when a crisis is coming, especially COVID and the economic impacts that are happening due to that, is that you need to have someone that has is resilient, uh, is someone that is calm, that someone that's good at all those executive functions. They talk about communication, planning, you know, um, how to deal with risk. And if you're not at your fully optimal best or the best version of yourself as you say it you know how can you how can you lead a company you know in the best way mm. and I think you mentioned a really important point is that if you haven't this habit of mindfulness you know that you stay in that high alert uh, part of the amygdala all right so yeah. again in terms of that by practicing that mindfulness habit you stay low so then your performance is consistent instead yeah. of erratic and it's funny in terms of leadership, we don't need people who are, you know, good when there's no crisis. We need people who are good when there is a crisis, you know, yeah. so, and it's brilliant that you have the evidence, you know, which yeah. is, which is really important though, because uh, I think that's a, we have the data and the research to back it up. Yeah. And I, I think there you mentioned uh, something very important. I mean, I was just in general talking about leadership, but especially as you mentioned in times of crisis, uh, it's the excessive amygdala activation that also resulted in the fact that there was no more toilet paper in the supermarkets. You know, yeah. so this is because we are absolutely uh, triggered in our feelings of insecurity, anxiety, and the excessive amygdala activation was perfectly measured by the lack of toilet paper in the in the supermarkets. And I believe, as a leader, especially in times of crisis. You need to be capable of having a balanced mind or approaching the situation with a balanced mind. And the science shows it. Mindfulness is just one of the best methods to keep this balanced mind. Or whenever you get in your moments of fear or insecurity, this happens to everybody, this will bring you back to your balanced mind. And, and you know, in your book, then you mentioned the den, you know, the direct experience network. Uh, I, have, I have to say I've highlighted so many sections of your book. I think it's so informative. And, and just I must note the listeners uh, and um, Caroline may be a bit embarrassed by this, but it's so wonderfully written that she tends to remind the reader of what you've told us maybe in a previous chapter and you really reinforce the learning there. So I have to say, listen, thank you for that. So tell us more about the DEN, the, the Direct Experience Network. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I'm happy that you bring it up because this brings me to um, showing how we practice mindfulness correctly. And before I talk about the Direct Experience Network, there is one other network that I need uh, to mention and this one is called the default mode network. 
the default mode network. It's a bit like your default settings, right? I'm quite sure you've noticed that our mind is extremely busy. It's mm. constantly producing thoughts, you're distracted. And especially in times of worry or stress, we're constantly going back into this loop of thinking, thinking, thinking. And it's exactly these thinking process that lead to excessive amygdala activation. This is the default mode network. With mindfulness practice, we activate another network in our brain that is called then, as you mentioned, the direct experience network. And where does the power of mindfulness lie? These two networks in our brain, they cannot be activated simultaneously. Ah. So this means that when you activate the direct experience network, as a biological consequence, this hamster wheel of thoughts that lead to amygdala activation, it will be shut out. You know, the okay. monkey mind, as they call it, you probably heard about the monkey mind, right? Yeah, tell the, the listeners more. The yeah. chatting mind, right? So we constantly have this voice in our mind that is reminding us of all the things we need to do, also unconsciously reminding us of the worries we have and that keeps us awake during the night. This is all like a byproduct of this default mode network. And it's exactly with mindfulness that we are capable of shutting down pure biologically this default mode network or monkey mind by activating this direct experience network. So that's the core neuroscience of mindfulness practice, so to say. So, so again, you know, we talked about the toilet paper, you know, where people <laughs> panic, but, you know, and panic does happen in organizations, doesn't it? Absolutely. We have to change our business model or our strategy or the, the ways of working or we have fear of losing our job, you know, so we protect. So, again, when we're in panic mode, it's not very helpful to an organization culture. And, you know, you were talking about that self-regulation piece and, and our inner blockages and, it's kind of, you know, I reflect back. That's why I found your, your book really useful was I sometimes get a brain fog, you know, in the evening. And yeah. do, do you know what I'm talking about? Where Absolutely. I, I, it's because I'm, it's usually when I'm delivering all day. Right. So I'll give you an example. Last night I delivered for a, a full day um, and I came back home. And it's because I kind of didn't take enough breaks during the session because it's full on when you're delivering and and that. And uh, that's why you can only deliver three or four times a week. You can't do it five days a week. It's, mm -hmm. it's tough, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and my wife was trying to talk to me or my son was trying to talk to me at dinner time. And my son says, where are you staring into? I was like, <laughs> what are you thinking about? What are you looking at? And, I, uh, and Danny, my son was just, he was just looking at me and says, I'm so sorry, Danny. I have brain fog. And I was trying to explain to him what brain fog was. <laughs> and and it, it is that overstimulation, isn't it? Exactly. This is a very beautiful uh, example. This is because you've used your prefrontal cortex in your delivery the entire day, which is a very tough job, William. I know it's a very tough job. And if you deliver a full day, you use your prefrontal cortex absolutely like crazy. Then you go home to your wife, to your children. Your prefrontal cortex is pretty empty and you're pretty much on, on your default, you know, or in, yeah. in worst case, if you are feeling very stressed, this is the moment that you easily lose patience or perhaps pick up a fight or just, you're not capable anymore, as you say, just by really engaging in conversations. Mm. And you know, William, what's the age again of your children? 
seven and five. Seven and five. So let me tell you, William, the news about your children is that they also have this uh, prefrontal cortex, but in their case, it's super tiny, small, and it's very quickly empty. <laughs> so whenever you put all those people in one household and they have this empty mental battery, this sometimes is a recipe for a disaster, right? Yeah, I, and I and and this is the thing I've been learning a lot more because I suppose the more popular you get with work, the more you know you're available for work, and the more you're delivering, and the more you're coaching, and it does you know sap that mental energy. And for me, I'm getting really good at self care, whereas before I was kind of like you know that's selfish or I don't have time for this. Where for me, I'm I've, and I've talked about this in other podcasts is how do you create those boundaries around yourself and you know but one of the ways you have to do that is is finding ways of self-care or mindfulness is just one form of self-care isn't it yeah it is it is absolutely it's a bit like a mental hygiene you would call it like that and i notice that in you when i talk to you you have a lot of uh, energy a lot of positive energy so i can see your self-care william <laughs> yeah well you know uh, i think I think if you're to be authentic, you have to bring your true self, you know, and I think if you're stressed or, you know, whatever, I'm not going to be at my best. I can't be creative, you know, and, and I think that's how we met was because of Lego. I wanted a different creative way to really uh, engage people, you know, so it's really important uh, for me. And if I'm honest, I've learned the hard way. You know, you talked about the difficulties that people might have in terms of, like for me, I was impacted by a lack of sleep or, you know, thoughts. What are the other ways that we might be impacted as a leader? How might I recognize that my battery is being depleted or I'm not practicing enough self-care? Yeah, indeed. So when you're depleted or when you're, this is a definition for when you have your mental battery empty and your amygdala is getting free play, this is the neuroscientific definition of a, a state of depletion. Uh, what we, you, you describe it as a brain fog, but if this brain fog, the way you described it, would always happen over and over and over again without a true recovery, this yeah. is when people really get close to a burnout, you know. Mm. And the symptoms are different for many people, but the ones that are very common is that you are not capable of focusing anymore. Many people also have a memory loss. Okay. Sleep is absolutely disturbed. Mm. Uh, you also see that some people really try to uh, recover by drinking too much alcohol because in okay. the evening time you drink a few glasses of wine and what does it do? It lowers your amygdala activation. So at for a short moment, this is quite nice. But at some point, if you keep on doing that, this is most certainly not the best strategy. Mm. Um, also, just having a very thin skin. I'm not sure. Do you say that in, in yeah. English like that? Having a thin yeah. skin? Being kind of sensitive or, you know, oversensitive to a remark or something like that. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. These kind of things. And especially the quality of your decisions will absolutely reduce Mm. And these are just more, I think, the effects that will also be noticeable for your surroundings as a leader. But I think one of the worst effects that you find if you are in a constant state of depletion is that you absolutely lose the connection to yourself. Yeah. So you're not, it's like you're a person that is walking next to you. You're absolutely losing the connection to yourself, to your own values, to your own visions. And if you lose connection to your own values and vision, then how are you going to lead people, right? 
Yeah. So I think this is really one of the worst effects. Yeah, and it leads to imposter syndrome, doesn't it, or a lack of confidence or those self-esteem uh, issues, and that would explain why so many people took up drinking during COVID, during the you know that that time is there was that yeah. that they were trying to quieten the amygdala response. Is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, that's that that's you know, it's that self-comforting that people do, isn't it? So sometimes it can be a, a coffee, which has, has subsequent consequence uses, you know, um, food, you know, there's different ways that we self-soothe, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, comfort food is uh, personally one of my favorite. <laughs> yeah, I'm a I big fan need- myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I notice it also in the evening time when my mental battery is uh, more empty, and I decide to just open the bag of crisps and I tell myself just a few and then you close the bag. Tell you, William, 15 minutes later and the bag is empty. <laughs> you have some yeah. discipline to, to wait 15 minutes. I don't wait that long <laughs> myself. And for me then, you know, I, I'm curious then about we're in this whole age of technology. You know, it's becoming more and more part of our lives. And you talked about stimulation or overstimulation there. Um, what's the role of technology in the lives, especially if people are working from home? You know, does that have a greater impact on the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. I'm not sure if it has always already been researched, but at least from the people that I've talked to in seminars, they pretty much report that the effect that at the end of the evening, when they've been in online meetings nonstop, they're mm. much more exhausted compared to when they would have that meeting in real life i'm not sure do you did you make similar experiences yeah you know and for me i've i've I, everybody I, I probably talk to gives me the same feedback they're they're zoomed out as they like to call it so we've coined a new a new phrase in 2020 you know um <laughs> and 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 another point then towards the technology then is people's personal habits with their smartphone you know is, th- is that because you mentioned before people disconnect with themselves so that's a form of disconnection isn't it absolutely absolutely uh, the the use of a mobile phone um is changing our lives it's i'm mm. quite sure at some point it's going to change our biology as well uh, i'm not sure how this is with your children i mean now my oldest uh, child she finally got a mobile phone but i really mm. see how this is changing her behavior yeah. It's the first of all it's the entire social inclusion which is an absolute illusion because in WhatsApp, this is not where we meet each other. This is where, you know, we just chat away a bit, but this is not the same as meeting in real life. Nevertheless, we have the fear of missing out. You know, it's this FOMO concept. Yeah. And um, this is very strong, especially in teenagers. And the result is that they spend so much time on their mobile phone that at some point they're not going to be capable of concentrating for 20 minutes anymore. And they're not far mm. off that. And this is yeah. because this entire use of mobile phone, this triggers your reward system, the way as in you mentioned drinking alcohol or also smoking, and you're constantly disturbed uh, by the reward system in your concentration. So this really uh, is a, a big issue at the moment. Yeah, I teach on some graduate programs there, and that's actually why I uh, introduced Lego was because I noticed people's concentration levels were diminishing. So not so much with senior leaders, and sometimes you would get with senior leaders, especially if it was a technology company where they're constantly interacting there. But I did notice that 
concentration levels and focus levels were very much diminished and it's actually by 50 percent yeah. So I, 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 so that's where I was using Lego as a, a way to engage people in different ways and to reflect. So I think if you're not able to focus, you're not able to do that reflection piece. And that makes leadership difficult because you're not able to reflect, you know, so you can't create that mastery of how to improve your own performance. So I do think technology has great benefits, but like anything, overuse has a dark side. Absolutely, you're right. It it has a dark side, and um, what could happen, and I'm a bit afraid that this is going to happen, and this is happening already, is that our business models are changing, the way we cooperate is changing due to the increase of uh, technology, which means that the behavior that we now see in our children, well, perhaps your children are still a bit too young, but I'm just talking perhaps more yeah. teenagers, this is going to become the norm. And people are going to do business or going to change business in such a way that it suits this type of behavior. Mm. And there's not going to be any need anymore to adapt or change that addictive behavior with technology. I believe this is where we're heading. And I, you know, I regret that, honestly. Yeah. And I think there's going to be connotations in the workplace because part of developing and maturing is that emotional intelligence that we pick up along the way. So facial expressions, emotional cues, you know, different things, reading body language, this is all going to be missed because we're in a land of, you know, emojis and, you know, shortening everything down and we're missing those really rich nuances there in terms of understanding our emotions um, and understanding others so it goes even self-regulation you know some things might be tolerated which normally wouldn't be tolerated so mm. you know my work as a mediator at the moment you know I'm noticing a lot of conflict between people in remote teams you know and the remote working and in virtual teams that there are so many cues being missed yeah. and that whole social fabric or that glue that keeps us together is really uh, weakening all the time. Yeah. Have you indeed. seen anything like that yourself? Or? Yeah. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, in one of the classes that I teach at the business school, uh, we talk about trust, especially trust in the virtual world. Yeah. And they always come to, come to the same point that meeting people in real life is so important to build trust. Mm. And trust is a cornerstone of a, of a relationship, right? Of, of performance and working together, team performance. And you're right, we miss a lot of cues when we're online. And it's especially those cues that help us to understand emotions. And yeah, this is uh, yeah, dropping away greatly with yeah. uh, purely online meetings. And it, so it does really weaken the social ties or social fabric of an organization, which weakens the culture. So then yeah. we're going to have a lot more talent flight, a lot more movement, it, you know, it'll inhibit productivity or change to go through necessary change, you know, and, you know, uh, and the relationship with change and our relationship with our teams and others. And, and speaking of that, then there was a really uh, interesting um, aspect of the book. And again, another conversation with your daughter where you were speaking about a colleague that, you know, was really getting under your skin, you know, and really stressing you out. So tell me a little bit more about that uh, story and, you know, the insights that you um, you understood about yourself then. Yeah. 
Well, the point that I was making there is that whatever happens outside is not, or whatever we see is not what happens outside, but this is what's happening in our own brain. We mm. all filter whatever is outside with our own personality, with the spontaneous activation we have in our brain at that very moment. And with respect to that story, what I was telling is that indeed I did uh, work with a colleague and um, she was claiming all success, whether this was her contribution or not. She was claiming all success. Was I perceived her as very dominant. And even just thinking about that person made me feel stressed. Because, you know, William, it's not people that are causing our stress. It's our own interpretation, our own thoughts of those people that lead to our amygdala activation. So one day I, I picked up my child from the daycare. I think she was four years old and she was uh, looking at my face. And she said, what's, what's wrong with you? Or, you know, what's wrong? Because, you know, you have this grumpy face. And I said, I'm just thinking of a colleague in work. I don't like her. And uh, she, my daughter asked me, so why don't you like her? And I tried to explain this in a way that she would understand. And I said, listen, you know, she says I don't do my job well. So my daughter totally shocked. She's like, mama, you always do your work well. I don't get it. And a few minutes later, she looked at me and she said, why don't you just think of a person you like? And I still remember she, she said that to me. And all of a sudden, I was so much pulled out of my own negative mood. And, decide, and this was the moment I realized I am creating my own emotions. I'm the one thinking of this person in a negative way. This means I will see negative things because I'm trying to confirm my own hypothesis. This makes the entire emotion worse, and this gives me a bad feeling, right? And so, yeah, a few years later, I met the same colleague on the street, and uh, I have this uh, most beautiful talk with this person. I hadn't seen her for a good few years, and all of a sudden, I realized that she was actually a very witty and pleasant person. And this I was able to see because I was able to let go of my own perspective, you know, so... This was uh, a quite an interesting insight that I had. Yeah, and it, it goes back to that confirmation bias that we, you know, we, we try to confirm our own thoughts, our own biases, our own preferences. So you mightn't like a dominant person, you know, and you might be able to see past that. And that brings us to locus of control, isn't it? That we Absolutely. control our own thoughts, our own behaviors, you know, what we say. And it's we're really much a lot more, uh, we have a lot more influence over our thoughts there, isn't it? Absolutely. It's what you mentioned. It's the confirmation bias. You know, we have an hypothesis. We have certain thoughts. We want to confirm that. And I believe that it is one of the most crucial um, skills for a leader to being able to aware of their own thoughts and being able to regulate them. Um, I believe it's if you, if you're, fully being the victim of confirmation bias, you're only going to think in one way. And this is not the balanced mind we just talked about, right? And also here, self-regulation or mindfulness in this case will definitely help us to become aware of our thoughts. And this is the first step that is necessary then to also being able to take a different direction or to not confirm those thoughts that you have. So yeah, it's it's an extremely important leadership quality I find. Yeah, and it, to decide. 
the freedom to decide and, and with that freedom it's and i've commented this on other you know podcasts it's that agility isn't it is yeah. we need as leaders it's been able to flex into understanding a different personality style or to have that empathy where the other person is coming from or to really check in on our own biases and you know another thing that you mentioned which is it's kind of part of the the, the den you know the direct experience network it's that whole thing of the Gottman ratio isn't it that University of Chicago uh, Institute where the the Gottman Institute what they did was they came up with a ratio of five to one so they did research in terms of uh, divorce rates among couples and they figured out that people who spoke positively to their partner or spouse five times more positively were were less likely to get divorced with that one thing and that one negative thing, if we focus on that um, too much, you know, what happens is it's, it overwhelms us. It does trigger that uh, amygdala response, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm, I'm happy you brought that up because um, these, there's also a good learning for us uh, in leadership here in what you've just mentioned. Let's say, for example, if you give feedback, you know, and you give feedback to one of your um, um the people who work for you, your team members, and you say five positive things or 10 positive things, you say, okay, what it is they did well. And all of a sudden at the end of the talk, you say, but you know, William, here in this organization, you still have a lot of, to learn, right? So you will go out of this talk and what have you remembered? The negative thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is the <laughs> negativity bias you're talking about. Yeah. We need so many positive things to make up for one negative aspect. So, yeah, mm. and this is, I think, if you're aware of this uh, ratio that you've mentioned as a leader, I think you can also restructure certain conversations that you might have with your team. Yeah, and especially the language that you use uh, around that and the timing of when you give your feedback. So that recency bias is very much at play because that's the last thing they remember going out the door is the last thing you said, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so in terms of, you know, mindfulness now, right, and accessing that direct uh, experience network, what, you know, is there any mindfulness te techniques or tips that you would give people? So especially if they are bombarded with technology, they're working from home, what are the little things, the little habits that can start, you know, incorporating as part of their daily routine? Mm -hmm. Well, the direct experience network in our brain is a network that is in close connection to our senses, seeing, listening, tasting, feeling, smelling our senses. And we activate this direct experience network by bringing our full awareness to the sensations we, we feel, we hear, we see. So just bring your full awareness to your senses here and now. And it's with this act that you will activate your direct experience network. As a biological consequence, the monkey in your mind will go quiet or you will shut out the default mode network. The monkey mind comes back and this is the moment that, again, you bring your full awareness to your senses here and now. So this is the core of mindfulness practice or mindfulness meditation, if you want. And how you can do this in your daily life is bring your awareness a lot to just what's happening right here and right now. For example, feeling something in your body or also just feeling your breath, even if it's just a few seconds. 
Because otherwise what's going to happen is your monkey mind is going to keep on chatting about the past, about the future, and your amygdala will all the time be triggered. So it's by bringing your full awareness to here and now, what our senses are feeling, that you will activate the direct experience network. So mind your breath once in a while, and especially don't forget to breathe out. By breathing out, you will also lower your amygdala activation. And in stress, we will breathe in a lot, very superficially. So fully breathe out once in a while. Pay attention to your body. Be aware of your body. These are all short, mindful moments that you can very easily include into the day. Yeah, I'm actually feeling very relaxed uh, now after listening to that. So uh, listeners, if you're driving your car, uh, please wake up. Uh, so... so in terms of this we're coming to the end of the podcast now so i have to thank you so much for sharing all your wisdom so far so if there are any key takeaways then to listeners here what might those key takeaways be i would say be aware of your amygdala because your amygdala is so much more powerful and can be very destructive so just one key takeaway be aware of how your amygdala is triggered once in a while. And when you really feel that the amygdala is triggered, just breathe in and out a few times. And I think that's already a great start to being more mindful. So as I, as I say to my son, you know, and my, both my sons, the golden rule is to keep the cool. You know, <laughs> breathing will be your friend, won't it? Yeah, okay. absolutely. So, so yeah. thank you so much for that. And if people were to get in contact with you, you know, and, and what are the what are the different ways that you can help people? So if you can let our listeners know that, that'd be great. Yeah, well, uh, uh, as you mentioned, I have a website, which is called scienceandleadership.com. Google it together with my name, uh, Caroline Nutzebat, and you will definitely find me. And as you will see from the website, what it is that I do a lot and what I absolutely love doing is hold keynotes on these topics. Uh, seminars, mainly in organizations where it's about leadership. And what I also do, uh, and this is I find very interesting and uh, I find it important, I also guide leaders who have reached a state close to burnout and I guide them on individual personalized uh, retreats. So these are the three main things that I would do. And of course, I would definitely also recommend if you want to know more to listen to my TEDx talk, or of course, read my book. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time today. That is the end of our podcast today. And thank you very much to everybody for listening. Yeah, very welcome, William. That's it for this episode of the Workplace Podcast. My special thanks to this week's guest for a wonderful discussion. If you want to get in contact with a podcast about a workplace topic or a particular challenge that you're facing, contact me via Twitter at Different Paths. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, William Corless, C-O-R-L-E-S-S, or go to my website, www.yellowwood.ie. Yellowwood, your external learning and development partner. Provide your executive coaching, facilitation, and training. Take a different path to success with your career, leadership, team, and organization.